Hi everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm Sophia Youngji, and thank you so much for listening and subscribing and downloading all that good stuff. Um, before we get into today's uh, message or sermon, I don't know what to call it, episode, it's like weird. It's like, yeah, it's an episode, but technically they're sermons, I don't know. Um, but if you would like to support us, um, please do visit us at justthenameless.com, justthenameless.com. Um, I would, you know, love to be able to get a, a proper microphone to record and have the ability to properly maintain our archives and our website and all that. So if you want to be a part, uh, join us there. Um, and yeah, thank you for listening. All right. Here we go. I wonder if you remembered this, but a few, but a few years ago, uh, Martin Scorsese said that Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are like amusement park rides; that it's not real cinema. And you know, the whole, the whole internet went into an uproar about that, and a lot of people said, "Well, he's a master filmmaker; he does have a point." And, um, I mean, why are all these, you know, why are the masses so involved in the Marvel movies when they really are just explosions and that's kind of it? And, you know, it's pushing out all these other movies that could have been playing in theaters that are now relegated to the studios not even making them. Um, these films that can talk about the human condition um, and it seems like Netflix has tried to pick up the slack just because, you know, they're, they're the only ones willing to make them anymore. Um, but, you know, as a fan of the Marvel films myself, I kind of have to disagree, well, not disagree with Martin Scorsese, but I have, I feel like, I feel like I have to explain something because maybe the reason why the Marvel movies has captured the, the, the hearts of audiences around the world um, I think Martin Scorsese is trying to say that's, that's bad for humanity because now there's no room for like quote-unquote true film that speaks to the human condition. But really, um, I, I want to I see this from a different perspective. I want to see, uh, yes, I do want to talk about uh, we do need art that speaks to the human condition. We do need art that um, kind of guides our way to explore what it is to be human um, because that informs our humanity that makes us more human and I, I think Roger Ebert the film critic he said film is an empathy generating machine there's no other art form like film where you get to step into the lives of someone you have no idea about and for two hours you kind of get to be them and you come away with with a greater understanding of, of them 
and a greater understanding of yourself. And in that process, you become more human. So I, I get what Martin Scorsese is trying to say. We, we need more cinema like that. But I want to use this word that I think might kind of show that it's all the same thing. That there's as much value in the Avengers as the good, the, the good fellows. Um, and the word I want to use is touchstone. See, one of the reasons why a lot of fans just absolutely fall in love with the Marvel movies is because, yes, they're super entertaining. Um, they're superheroes, capes and flying and super strength and explosions. But at the core of all these movies, you have flawed human characters going on emotional journeys that might not be as um, dramatic as a Martin Scorsese film, maybe, but the characters do go on a human journey. And what happens is um, we kind of, a, a little bit of that seeps into us. Uh, it seeps, and, and it's kind of, um, the experience of watching a movie is like frozen in time. It's like, you remember who you were with, you remember your age, you know, whether you were a college student or whether you were in middle school, it leaves an impression on you, especially the younger you are. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I was watching this, one of the old Star Wars movies, um, uh, when it came out, uh, the, the episodes one, two, and three, one of those movies. And um, that movie was all about Darth Vader becoming Darth Vader because a Jedi apparently is not supposed to fall in love, but Anakin Skywalker is like, I love this person, whatever. And it kind of messes up his Jedi, you know, Zen, whatever. And he turns to the dark side. And I cried at that movie because I was in the process of breaking up with someone and because it, you know, it became clear that we were on two different paths in life. And, and I, I remember sitting in the theater going, oh, like, I, I, usually I'm like, I'm, I'm so into a movie. I'm totally immersed in the world of the movie when I'm in the cinema. But in that moment, I kind of had like this, like outside, I, I like stepped back. Like I'm observing myself mentally going, Oh, isn't this interesting how this popcorn flick is making me cry because its themes are speaking to something real in my life. So that film became a touchstone that touched the nerve into my real life. And it 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 emphasized it, it informed it, it shaped it. And I think that's what these movies do. Where when you see um, Tony Stark saving the world by making a sacrifice, There, it touches a nerve of, of something real about our lives. And those films become touchstones to something that, that, that connects to something real and deeper in our lives. Um, 
Same thing with The Godfather, for example. Um, why do people keep going back to it? Because it becomes a touchstone for something in your life. Or books do this, novels do this. We go back to those books again and again and again. Um, right now, there's these articles floating around written by millennials saying how there's a generational war between Gen Z and millennials and how Gen Z hates millennials for their side-parted hair, blah, blah, blah. And one of the complaints that was written about was, oh, how Gen Z is annoyed at millennials for clinging so preciously to their Hogwarts houses. And, I mean... Yeah, do we not know that it's fantasy? Do we not know that if you think about it, it's all just ridiculous stuff? Well, we know. And as a trans person, there's another layer of complexity for that for me. I know that the author is transphobic. And yet, I can't ignore the fact that those books and movies are touchstones in my life. And those books and movies spoke to something real in my life at the time I saw them, at the time that I read those books, and nothing can take that away. And so I'm still a fan because they're touchstones to something real, that connects to something real in my life. Yeah. Touchstones. It's, um, you know, it's like, it's like an inception, like, to figure out if you're still in a dream state or not, you have a totem that, that connects you to reality. Um, for, for Leonardo DiCaprio, it was the spinning top. And if it stops spinning, he knows he's awake. And if it keeps spinning and doesn't stop spinning, then he knows he's still in a dream. It's a, it's a totem. It's something that connects him to reality. It's an object that you can grasp and connect to something. So whether it's, uh, uh, so I want to talk about art as a, as, as a kind of totem or a touchstone to something deeper and more permanent and more endearing in our lives. Uh, the novel, the book, oh, music, oh my gosh, music is so big. Every couple has our song, so to speak. Um, you know, you turn on a, you know, you, you hear a song on the radio that played, that was the song senior year of high school, and it takes you right back. It takes you right back. Um, it's a totem. It's a touchstone. And I want to tell you about a piece of religious art that, you know, I was introduced to it not too long ago, uh, maybe a handful of years ago in seminary. Um, and, and I was impressed by it then. But about a week ago, it turned into something else entirely. And I want to share this journey with you. And, you know, I hope it helps you make sense of something that never really made, well, that I had trouble grasping from, from the Christian life, uh, uh, living as a Christian. So, so let, let, let me introduce you to this piece of art. It's a, real, it's a piece of religious iconography. Um, it is called The Trinity. It's, it's by uh, an artist named Andrei Rublev from uh, Moscow. Uh, he painted it in the 1400s. Yeah. And it, it 
on the surface, it depicts uh, Abraham uh, uh, spreading out a meal for the three angelic figures that visit him. And um, the, the, in Genesis, where the story uh, uh, happens, the, the language gets mysterious because at first it says that Lord, that the Lord, that God, that Yahweh visited Abraham, but then it, but then it says they were through angels, but then you know the angels start speaking as if they were God in God's voice, and and so the text is trying to say these angels are mediating the presence of God to the degree that they might as it might as well have been God. And, and was it God? Was it an angel? It, nobody knows. It's a mystery. But, but it, it, it was a divine encounter. And Abraham, he, he does the, 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 the thing according to his culture at his time, which is to be hospitable. And he spreads out a meal for them. And that's the scene that it depicts. You have these three angels seated at the table. But... They're seated in a strange way. Um, you have the table, and you have the angel in the middle sitting, facing us as we view the painting. Okay. And then you have two angels on either side of the middle angel. All right. But the weird thing is, the two angels on either side, they're sitting facing outward towards us. I mean, if you're sitting at a table to eat, Shouldn't your knees be facing the table? Shouldn't your knees be under the table? But no, these, these two angels, their chairs are turned outward facing us. And what happens is it creates a negative space between them. And by, by them turning outward, it's almost like they're opening the gates and saying, hey, why don't we join us? There's a seat for you here. And uh, one, you know, some art historians think that um, there might have been a piece in the front lower part of the painting that's now faded that may have been some kind of reflective material so that if, if you are standing in front of this icon, as you're looking at it, you can see your face reflected in that little silver part so that you see yourself in the painting seated among them. And to make a long story short, um, you know, this is, a, this is Christian iconography. So using the image of the Old Testament story, the, re the reason why the painting is called the Trinity is because it's, it's kind of a call act to, you know, you know th this is the Trinity, this is the triune God, this is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or... Mother, Son, Holy Spirit, um, God has no gender. Um, this is the Trinity, and it's a table sharing a meal, and it's God saying, you belong here. It's God saying, there's a seat for you here at this table. And I find that remarkable. And, 
you know, there there are several scenes throughout the Bible where um, it, it's like a significant divine encounter and it's expressed as a meal. Um, Moses and the elders, they go up to the mountain and they share a meal with God. Uh, Jesus, after the resurrection, he calls his disciples and he cooks breakfast for them. And he says, let's have a meal together. These divine encounters happen in the context of a meal. Because a meal says fellowship. A meal says your family, you're one of us. A meal says you're welcome here. So this painting of the Trinity reminds us that God is not closed off to God's self, but God opens outward to us and says, I have a table prepared for you. Psalm 23 says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and there's sleep for you here. And as someone who grew up in the, in, 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 in the Reformed tradition, uh, Calvin, Presbyterian, all that, uh, anti-LGBT, conservative. This notion that God is facing me and saying there's a table here for you, that, I, that God wants me to be seated within God's self in that way, it's borderline blasphemy. Like that concept of God is not taught. Uh, uh, the concept of God that's emphasized was God is up there. We're down here. We are worms. We are unclean. We are worthy of death. And God's love was so great that he, he came down and became one of us. And he lived among us in a squalor, and he redeemed us, and, 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 and you better praise God, God damn it. <laughs> you know? Um, fear God. Um, now, to be fair, in youth group, I was taught that doesn't mean we were afraid of God. It means that our love for God and God's love for us is so overwhelming it's like this reverent awe. Um, so that helped in, in my relationship with God. But the concept was God is up there. Yes, the Holy Spirit is here. Holy Jesus is in my heart. The Holy Spirit is within me and all that. But at the same time, God is still up there. And, and, and in worship, in, in, in meditating on the scriptures, if I ever felt close to God, I would say and, and, and imagine that the presence of God was coming down upon us from up high. In other words, unless God chose to descend to us, there was no other way for us to be close with God. And with this kind of um, limited view, limited metaphor for seeing how it is that we can relate to God, it became very frustrating to me when I first, about eight years ago, 
I first started to feel gender dysphoria in earnest, and it, it, it was very distressing to me. I thought, you know, is this the devil talking to me? Am I, you know, am I being tormented by demons? Is there something wrong with me? Isn't this sinful for me to think this way? Um, you know, like, oh, like out of nowhere, like like something that latched onto my brain, like, I want to be a girl. And, and I thought, what the hell was that? Um, you know, and I remember in therapy, I, I like rationalized, I like, like, I, 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 I remember saying out loud to my therapist, well, is it in, is being a girl, is being a female inherently wrong or sinful? No, because we're all made in God's image. So why would I feel like it's sinful for me to have this painful existential crisis about feeling like I'm not supposed I'm supposed to be a girl but I still struggle with it because I was taught all my life that's a sin it's a choice being gay is a sin being trans is a sin uh, it's spitting in the face of God our creator so being trans is worse than being gay because it's going against God's created order. And so I prayed. And in my prayers, I remember saying things like, you know, I, I was like crying and trembling. And I was saying, God, you know me. God, you know how much I love you. God, you know how much I've loved you with, with pure intent since I was a child. And all of a sudden, for me to feel this way to the point of feeling suicidal about this whole thing, feeling depressed about not having been born female or assigned female. Um, within that wrestling prayer, I remember at one point I found myself saying, God, tell me to stop. If this is a sin, tell me to stop. And I felt a hatred towards myself. And at the same time, I sensed that that self-hatred was wrong. And I felt the silence of God. As in, I will hear none of that. I will not hear that. I will not hear you say that to yourself. And that got me angry. God's silence made me angry. And I was holding on to the doctrines that I was taught. And I thought, God, you're supposed to help me resist temptation. So as this desire to be a woman, as this despair of being a man, as it continues to drive me to despair, and, and as it begins to eat away at my bandwidth in my brain, constant, God, if this is a sin, it's your job to tell me to stop. So tell me to stop. 
I said, angry at God. What is wrong with you, God? Aren't you repulsed by this? Don't you want to save me from this? But again, I felt the silence of God. And I also felt a strange kind of pity mixed with compassion towards myself, as in, do you hear what you're saying? Do you hear what you're saying? Do you hear what you're asking God? Do you see how you're berating yourself before your Creator? And do you see how angry you are at God for not being what you think God should be like? Because it was clear to me that God's answer to that request was silence. So I said, okay. Maybe, okay, all right. So maybe I do really need to seriously consider um, what LGBTQ Christians are saying on YouTube, on blogs, on websites. What does it mean to be gay and Christian? What does it mean to be trans and Christian? Because clearly I love God. And, you know, I was raised Pentecostal, so I'm like, I remember uh, one of the first quote-unquote tests I ran on myself was I tried praying in tongues, and I'm like, okay, so Holy Spirit's still with me. <laughs> I can still speak in tongues, even though I'm going through this excruciating pain of gender dysphoria. And, and, and of course, I still loved God. Um, still in seminary, all that. And for the next few years, um, as I prayed through this, God began to answer me with a phrase. And, and at first you would think, this would be my answer. This would give me my peace. Because this is what God said to my heart. God said, I am with you. Whoa, 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 what does that mean, God? What do you mean you're with me? Are you saying you understand how I feel and you're going to support me if I choose to transition and you're going to guarantee my future somehow? I can't be trans. I'm a pastor. But I would hear nothing else. So, the words that would normally comfort me, I began to say to God, God, that's all you've been saying to me for like years now. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. And I didn't hear it. I didn't hear the power, the love behind those words that God was speaking to me over and over again, I am with you. And I started to say, God, that doesn't help me because I don't know what that means. Are you saying it's okay? Are you saying you're with me, you're going to help me defeat this sin? Are you saying you're with me, you approve of my being queer? But that doesn't sound like the God I've been taught who 
Well, needless to say, I've had many other journeys and encounters um, that led me to eventually accept myself, learning that being trans is, you know, for, for myself, the easiest way for me to acknowledge myself was to learn that I was born with a female brain, a feminized brain, um, in the womb. And it's called the uh, br br gender, br gender brain gap theory. Um, so so I, 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 I gravitated towards that. But you know, about a week or two ago, something happened. Something happened. I was, um, you know, uh, I turned on worship music. I was praying. Um, for me, I often uh, hear God speak to my heart when I'm listening to worship music. So I do that. And I'm worshiping, I'm worshiping. And, and again, I hear God saying, I am with you. And you know, like, like this time I was praying to God about my, my like, I don't know, like my financial situation, things like that. Like, um, like God, like, like, you know, like what happened to my career? Like, you know, I was in an industry that I loved for like 15 years and it just, I just like, it disappeared overnight. Um, like God, like look at the place I'm in. And, you know, God's response. And, and, and when I heard that in my heart again, I thought, oh, typical. <laughs> it's like, not that I don't appreciate it, God, but like I said before, like, it, it's kind of meaningless now because that's all you've been telling me for the past five, six, seven years. I heard, I am with you. But then something happened. Because, okay. So I hear God saying to my heart, I am with you. It's a statement of fact. God is saying, hey, hey, don't worry. I'm with you. I got you. I'm with you. But then, like, suddenly, like another layer of meaning, like, like fell down like a feather on top of that. And when I picked it up, it was a question. God was saying, I want you to respond. And in that moment, there was only one response that made sense. Only one perfect response to God telling me, I am with you. And I remember saying to God, and I am with you. And all of a sudden, God wasn't coming down from above to me to be with me. To say that he's got my back. All of a sudden, when God was saying, I am with you, it became a question. It became an invitation for me to acknowledge that I'm with him too. For me to say, God, my heart is with you. For me to say, I am loyal to you, God, as you are loyal to me. I am faithful to you, God, because you are faithful to me. I love you, God, because you have loved me first. And when you said you are with me and I am with you, and I remembered the Trinity, this portrait, this icon, 
of the Trinity seated around the table of fellowship with the meal prepared. And instead of being closed off, seated open towards me, saying, Come, sit here. Sit here. There's a, there's a seat for you at this table within God through Christ. One of the most, you know, uh, headiest subjects in seminary was Trinity. Because the whole semester was, we never talked about what the Trinity was. We only talked about what it is not. Because um, the minute you try to describe what the Trinity is, you've got it wrong. Uh, or, or, or rather, you've... you've you you've skipped the stone too 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 far across the pond, and now the stone is out of the pond. You know. And in that class, we read an essay uh, uh, with uh, by a female theologian. I forget her name, but this one thing stuck out to me. She said. She said we have to remember. I'm totally paraphrasing. We have to remember that when when the word became flesh. When the Word became human, when, when, when the Word of God, who was God and is God from the beginning, Alpha, Omega, first and the last, when Christ became human, and when Christ died and resurrected and went back to the Father, the theologian says, think about this. Christ is now God and man. And what that means is, within the triunity of God, there is a humanness within God. Within the triunity of God, there is fleshliness in God. Within the triunity of God, there is us now. Through Christ, we are with God and in God. And so this icon, this painting of the Trinity, seated around the table of fellowship, seated outward facing me, says, here is your seat at this table. They may have turned their backs at their table. They may have closed up the seat that used to be yours like musical chairs all of a sudden. But at the table of God, in the heavenly realms, I think one of Paul's letters says that we are seated with Christ now in heavenly realms. So, is, is this describing some kind of metaphysical reality? Why not? Physicists say that uh, there's like 10, 27 dimensions or whatever, you know, multiverse and all that, time's an illusion. So why not? Why can't this be a metaphysical reality that somehow, through Christ, we're already seated with Christ in heavenly realms? That this table of the Trinity has a space for you, has a space for me, has a, has a place setting set out for you, has a place setting set out for me, and God is saying, come up here. Don't just imagine that you... That, 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 that when God says, I am with you, that God is coming down to you. 
remember that at the same time, when I say that I am with you, I am telling you that you are with me up here. And when I remember that I am also with God, in that most exclusive of tables. Invited like a child to go into, you know, parents' workplace and have all the candy out of their drawer that you want. Whereas the 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 the, the twenty year old intern who's like fifteen years older than you has no access to that candy in the drawer. You do. God has a place setting for you. God has a place setting for me. And God says, I am. And we say, and I am with you, God. 